Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Jordan. And I'm Elliot. Before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And if you would like to help us out with supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. So if you enjoy our content and would like to help us out with hosting costs, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about Monty Hall campaigns and mini hall campaigns, the types of campaigns where the DM either just gives out a loot like it is candy or the opposite of that, the mini hall where the DM gives out, um, gives out loot like you're standing in the breadline in uh, 20s Russia. Clean, before we go any further, can you explain who the fuck Monty Hall is? Yeah, for our younger listeners, I can imagine you have no idea who Monty Hall is. I, I wonder if you guys even know who Monty Hall is. Only because I looked it up one time. So um, back in the 70s, Monty Hall was a game show host and this um, for Let's Make a Deal. There is a current revival of Let's Make a Deal on TV, I believe right now, um, being hosted by Wayne Brady. But originally, Monty Hall was the um, the host of Let's Make a Deal, and um, the reason why this is named after him is because of all the wonderful prizes that people could come away with at the end of a um, at the end of a game session or at the end of an episode of the of the game show. And uh, this is probably one of the first RPG terms that I had ever learned that wasn't in a um, in one of the books, like just one of the. Um, I guess one of the memes of the um, of the hobby itself, um, a Monty Hall campaign being one where the money and loot is just given out willy nilly. This would be an example of like a a party that is fifth level having um, the paladin with a holy avenger and with some magical armor and. Um, as many magical items as they have spaces space on their body to uh, to carry at a very low level, which um, which the argument is that it unbalances the game because, hey, whenever you've got all of this very sweet magical gear, it throws off what little math there is for balancing encounters. Well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, on, on the DM side, you know, I think you can do either one of those intentionally and into and very in a very fun way um the i think the topic kind of implies when the dm isn't really doing it right thus the monty hall reference kind of in, in a jokey snarky way i mean when you i i mean there's whenever a party gets way out of balance with their level when you just load them down with wealth and magical items um it becomes, and the main problem in my mind, and you guys tell me what you think, is really just it makes it very difficult for the DM to plan uh, encounters that are challenging because it totally skews the challenge rating or however you want to think about it for other systems. Yeah, my experience in it is that if you, like, if it, it can even be as simple as giving one really powerful magic item to a party before it's really something that they have grown into. Um, an example of this, I would say would be, um, whenever I, um, ended up giving out a, um, 
Oh, now I can't remember what it's called, but it's a horn of horn of Valhalla. That's what it's called, where um, the player, one player character can blow this horn and it summons um, something like 2d6 um, combatants to fight on your side. Um, This magic item makes pretty much any combat. um, Well, at the level I that these that these uh, players had the item, the uh, the warriors that they summoned were higher level than the player characters themselves. So this was basically a we win this fight card that they could play. Well, let's go into some, let's let's enumerate some of these, maybe from personal experience or from uh, um, maybe games we've ran or whatever. Uh, like, what are the downsides to the Monty Hall first? And then maybe we should discuss what are the downsides of the uh, mini hall or the, the stingy hall game from the player and the DM perspective. I've already said the one with the challenge rating. What are some other challenges? I think it's an interesting complaint from the player's perspective that they would uh, they would chafe at getting too much gear. Um, you wouldn't expect that necessarily at, at first glance. Just doing kind of. No, I agree completely. Yeah, I've never heard a player complain about getting too much loot, but what I have seen is players get bored because there's not a challenge. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the imbalance too. Uh, I mean, for me, those are the best parts of a game. Whenever uh, you get your mat, like say you get a, I can think of one game in particular where uh, I was early on. I was given every every party member was given something but i remember getting a magical hammer of returning that it was just so special because it was the only getting a magic item feels awesome as a player but whenever other players like there's always that uh, have you been in that game where one guy or gal gets that awesome weapon and then everybody's looking at them like with jealousy and then like looking back at the DM and like it almost starts the countdown. It's like, well, where's mine? You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's another thing. When you start to hand out stuff and not all magic items and not all uh, loot is made equal. And inevitably, I've seen more often than not, you get like jealousy almost or people getting mad. because And then the DM, it creates this arms race in the party where the DM has to like feel almost I've, I've felt many games i've ran com, like the d like the players this silent pressure to like like yeah, equal it up you know what i mean yeah i, th- I think it's very similar go ahead no you go ahead i interrupted you last time and kept talking i was just gonna say that um yeah i, I think that that that's a natural thing that can come from a gear imbalance or it could come from any kind of like bestowed power kind of imbalance just as easily but one of the things about the the monty hall mini hall thing is that it it sort of implies that um if left alone there's this like perfect equilibrium that the game system has in its natural state and that a a dm wanting to you know overcompensate for their own inadequacies will you know, try to win over the party by just giving out presents or, you know, be some vindictive bastard by not giving out any toys or whatever, you know, some presumably scheduled rate that would be optimal for gameplay. But 
I, for one, think that's giving way too much fucking credit to really any game system I've ever played. <laughs> I think game systems themselves can be like a, a Monty Hall scenario, even without a, a DM tilting the balance one way or the other. Yeah, I see the Monty Hall problem being very similar to the quote problem where one player is very very much optimized, whereas very much optimized far and away more than the other players. The difference here is that in whenever a player is optimized, the player has made those decisions. In the Monty Hall situation, it is the DM who either intentionally or unintentionally has given one particular player such a massive advantage over comparably the other players so the the problem here lies in the source of the imbalance and it's i've seen players get more jealous when it is when the imbalance is due to the dm yeah absolutely i've i've definitely been in those games where just we're just the the party itself very quickly if not off the jump then we'll say you know within the first couple sessions have just lucked into tons of uh of wealth and it can really i don't know like on the player side it's it's plenty of fun like it just adds resources it adds like when you go to places where you can actually spend if it's just if it's say if it's like gold or loot or currency i guess um you you know it get I, i've never had a negative experience with it um i mean re- really come to think of it yeah uh, what I mean, really, besides the besides the the DM difficulty of balancing the game, what is the downside? Why not just give a player a really you know good source of income and a great magic weapon as soon as possible? Like, why not? This is not a good source of income and a magic item. This is something that is far and above that. This is giving them wealth far beyond what they have what they should have earned by this particular level. This is uh, when, when the game is balanced to each player having a plus one weapon and some plus one armor where either one or multiple players in the party are walking around with plus three um, weapons, shields, armor, and necklaces and capes and boots and all of these things that completely throw off the math of the game. Um, I see. I see this being a problem that DMs complain about because it it becomes incredibly like any any advice given in the in the uh, rule book on how to balance out an encounter is no longer applicable, and so the DM sees all oh, the problem is this thing that I did is causing this imbalance in the game and now I have to struggle in order to to solve it. That's how I see like there are certain magic items that everybody I know has a story about the time when they used them. I'm thinking deck of many things, uh, ring of wishes, uh, any of that stuff. There are just certain certain magic items that are famous in D&D that me as a DM would pretty much never give a party because it can it high level magic gear can just it not only can it de I mean it's one thing to have a really powerful sword or weapon. Combat is mini game inside the it's maybe the the major game inside of our RPG, but sometimes you can give a magic item specifically um 
uh, it seems like it just there's so much potential for it to derail the game altogether. You know what I mean? It, the the magic item itself can quickly become the purpose of the game, and uh, though I mean that may not necessarily be a bad thing if it's more fun than what the players had been doing, but still, you know, any DM who preps a narrative in some form or fashion is gonna have a hard time dealing with a magic item that all of a sudden becomes the main driver of a narrative, like the consequences of a wish or these these high, high level decks uh, like these high level un, unpredictable anything that's a very unpredictable mag, powerful magic items i usually feel like they don't have much of a place in my games is that shitty of me i think so i'm i'm thinking about all the different times that i've seen a deck of many things or a ring of wishes or you know one of these like crazy things pop up and it yeah unexpected shit happens um but I don't remember a time where it completely derailed the narrative or anything. Um, Sometimes it'll add like weird shit that uh, you didn't plan for and that's, that's fine. But I think when you write out stuff like that, you're, you're taking away a a pretty decent chunk of like the, the wonderful chaos that D and D can be. Um, I mean, every, everybody who's playing the game, still has the same vested interest in the narrative going forward. It's not like anything's going to come out of the, the deck of many things that says, all right, everybody dies and the universe explodes. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there isn't anything, any card that does both of those things, but there is a card that like basically everybody, well, the player character either dies or, uh, um, well, the player just has to fight death or die. And uh, any players who, any other players who help them out, they also get a copy of death that they then have to fight and die and can very quickly lead to a total party kill. Yeah, that's epic as fuck. I mean, you you probably wouldn't want to, you know, toss something like that into your game willy nilly. But if if the the group is prepped for like what's what's about to happen and they get this thing and they understand like the gravity of this thing, um, I mean whatever happens from there is what the fucking party wants to do. So cool. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I just, I wish that I could have that courage as a DM. Maybe that should be a, uh, a goal of mine. Uh, it's, it should be on my long-term DM growth plan <laughs> to lighten up a little bit and just let the players, uh, have some wild experiences that are, you know, unplanned. I think a lot of those things really got a bad rap in like the early days first and second edition and stuff um because like stuff was much crazier back then every edition that comes out i I look at those iconic like major items and stuff and it seems like they get a little bit nerfed more and more with every every new edition i mean they're still huge and like clayton said you know major stuff can happen but like that was the style of stuff and all the old like Gygax, Arneson stuff is just like wild ass shit going on. People fucking dying randomly and just jumping in with a new character. Oh, your character's, you know, gender is changed or race is changed or whatever the fuck. Like everything was kind of up for grabs. And I think they've like reined that in a lot in recent editions. Oh man, that could cause some, some 21st century conflicts. A card like that change Mm -hmm. your gender. Hmm. How many genders are my choices? <laughs> so, can we agree though that the Monty Hall getting too much 
it's probably better than the mini haul though in some i think it's all is it's all isn't it always better to err on the side of give too much versus too little or i mean i guess the monty haul as you have said multiple times is just clearly over and above way too much way too powerful but if we scale it back a little bit playing in a game where resources and magic items they come real fast and real easy versus the slog of playing this grindy stingy game which i mean in my mind i would much rather play the monty hall versus the mini hall i think D is absolutely built to be a monty hall game like i think that is the balance point of D and to to say otherwise it's it's just not recognizing it for what it is like for example um and I, I think it's it's contextual based on what setting that you're in, but arguably Forgotten Realms is the flagship setting for Dungeons and Dragons, and has been since it took the reins from Greyhawk, you know, back in the day. Um, arguably, the iconic character of the Forgotten Realms would be Drist. That that's the that's the example of what you know a, a character in full fruition would look like. In, in Forgotten Realms, that's what you aspire to be. Drift's item list is ridiculous. Yeah, pretty much everything he has is some crazy magical item. It's insane. And it just shit that, like, it, it looks like you just got it from random rolls. Oh, I got this figurine that turns into a fucking panther. What? Yeah, sure, it's there. All right, cool. All these fucking, like, you know, cloaks and rings and swords and fucking every goddamn thing he has is just fucking great. And he's a fucking superhero in the Forgotten Realms. And that's exactly what D&D kind of assumes that you're trying to be. The whole damn thing's a power fantasy. I am not a lover of the random magic chart. Should that be a... That's something I should definitely fix in my playing, no? Don't you think? I think the Monty Hall problem comes mostly from the random uh, loot charts where you you have a, a chance to roll on... Uh, roll a magical item every so often and if you're if you're very if you're very strictly adhering to just the rolls it is going to happen just as a fluke that um nine out of ten times when you might when you only have a 10 percent chance of getting a magic item it's going to happen sometimes that you you roll to get a magic item every single time and then whenever you go to roll which magic item you get it's going to be one of the more powerful on the list. I mean, just the law of averages says that some people are going to have to deal with that. Yeah, that's why I'm afraid of them. How would you define like what would be the the optimum running condition, though? Like, if if you've got a a party that lucked into a bunch of like really hot rolls for loot from the last adventure, and now you know couple of them are walking around with plus three weapons or whatever the fuck. Um, why why don't you just, you know, give more hit points to your monsters or make their AC higher or whatever? Like, I, I don't understand, like, why it's so hard for a, a DM to deal with it. It takes a lot of experience as being a GM in order to learn how to deal with those situations. I think that a lot of this problem comes from relatively new DMs who who don't really have a firm grasp on how to balance out encounters and how to balance out um, 
things to account for the, the power level of the player characters and these relatively inexperienced DMs giving out more than, um, more loot than what would give a balanced encounter. Um, and yeah, after you've had some experience under your belt and you can recognize, uh, what actually is needed to balance out an encounter besides what's just written in the book. You, you kind of get, get through experience how, how many enemies the, of, of what power level the player characters can take at any particular time. I think it's, I think that the Monty Hall problem and to a lesser extent, the mini hall problem are both problems that are a, a, a growing pain of becoming a better GM. For sure. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. Though I will say, I mean, in talking from my experience, that's like part of the way that I keep from that from happening is I I do tend to micromanage in my GMing and don't ever use randomness as I use randomness as little as possible. And that can but on the other hand, you know, like Jordan was kind of describing, there's a certain like in the games I've played that were very much like that off the cuff, um, willing to I think about it like this. It's like you know in you guys have played Fallout Four, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the funny things about it is that like it's so big and there's so many things to do. You know, the character wakes up and he's his son's been kidnapped and his goal is to go find him. And yet, you know, level 40 comes and you haven't even finished the first quest because you've been doing other things. There's like no urgency to it at all. That's kind of a type of game that I think that would be fun to run that lends itself to more of a randomness and could even cause a Monty Hall kind of situation where, you know, if you having a very like having a very like loose narrative that doesn't really have a lot of urgency that allows the players the breathing room you know there's not playing running a game where there's not some cursed item you know that within 20 days is going to destroy the world you know you know forcing the players to go on this like hard rail whereas if you give the players a chance to just go around and maybe do some random encounters do some random rolls and dungeons stuff uh that's a type of GMing that's so intimidating to me, but yet it would be so fun. You know, who, who wouldn't love to open a treasure box in a random dungeon and then, like, lo and behold, they pull out this crazy awesome weapon that everybody's jealous of. Like, that's, those are the best moments as a as a player, right? I mean... Fuck yeah, dude. And honestly, that's that's how this game, I think, was originally designed to play. Like, you go back and look at it, all the like old original adventures and it's just some random location with some self-contained shit going on in it you know it's keep on the borderlands it's fucking elemental evil it's whatever the fuck you know thing going on that's your your dungeon of the week and i think the assumption back then was that you're doing this big like exploration hex crawl thing across a continent and just accumulating wealth as you can i I don't know when the the whole like Lord of the Rings like epic story arc thing became like the staple for for every D and D campaign, but um, I, I don't know. I think uh, I don't I don't think it was built to be like that, or you'd see a different power curve and stuff. Yeah, I, I think original D and D like D and D and its original kind of ideal was more Conan the Barbarian than Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. How does this apply to non Wizards of the Coast games? 
Well, most games that I play that aren't D&D, loot isn't... Uh, well, no, I take that back. Most of the games I play that aren't D&D, loot isn't a big deal. Except for Traveler, where loot is pretty much everything. Loot is how you advance your character. Man, uh, shout out to the Dune Modifius game. Um, I guess we can say shout out because I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, that's one of the things that really has me vexed uh, is that a major mechanical part of the game, a core element of the game, is are called the parts called your assets, and um, like the top, the assets that you choose can be social or they can be your, and, but they're also your equipment. And so in the game, you start out with three, I believe. And one has to be a material object, so it has to, it could be a Chris knife, it could be a Gom Jabbar, but it could even be like an ornithopter or some armor or something like that. And in that kind of a system, it would be like it. Just reading through the book, it all seems like it could easily be uh, get very Monty Hall real quick because you could have like a squad of soldiers could be your asset. You know, you could have a ship. You could have uh, these big ticket items, which to me blows me away because it seems like it would get out of hand really quick. But um, so I don't really know how that contributes to this at all. But like, there are some games out there who really take a very different approach to equipment altogether that can be pretty interesting to where you can get your big ticket item as a part of your character creation. It's kind of weird. Here's what I see as the the core problem to Monty Hall problems, even for people who are experienced GMs who are dealing with the issue. Once you give out the fucking awesome, cool loot, how do you top yourself the next time loot is given out? Rust monsters. How do you get players excited the next time they get their, their loot and it's, oh, I get another plus three weapon? Awesome. Thanks. I'll just put this in my sheath or um, for for whenever my uh, my holy avenger is no longer available to me. That's a great question. I don't know that I know the answer to that. I feel like to me, if as a player, going back to that hammer, um, I remember this game. I think ran till maybe twelfth level ish, and it got very epic. It had more of a Lord of the Rings style narrative to it. We were all on a big fellowship quest. But I got that hammer super early, and I always thought it was a really good trick that the DM did. Is that he? Uh, what he did was he he made it the you know just a hammer of returning. I think is what it all it was. It was just a that was my preferred weapon. I think I was it was a mace actually. It was my pre- character's preferred type of weapon, and it had that cool magical quality. And what he did, and it, initially it wasn't too broken it was really useful and i had a lot of pride in it as a player but all the players had something like it and what he would do is he would as time went on he would unlock more ability so instead of like um ro- say rolling on a random encounter chart or whatever a random magic chart and giving you another item as we got you know more down the road th- he would give more qualities to the weapon you already had and that was really cool you know, but I mean, but another thought on the, that that topic was, I mean, at a certain point, if you just get gifted either through the DM or random roll a really nice item, like to me, you cannot complain about that, right? Like, I don't really, as a D, as a player who had a really precious magic item in the past, 
I held on to that thing with dear life, and I didn't care if I got another thing ever again. Like, I might want some complimentary things, but, like, I never felt shortchanged because I didn't get a better one. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I really like when stuff happens, like you mentioned, where you get a magic item that grows with you, and so it becomes, like, part of your character story. That's that's super interesting, and, you know, it it's not just another fucking piece of gear that you're going to sell for the the next plus one at the the next town. Yeah. And um, Jordan, you hinted at something that I think of is a solution to a Monty Hall problem. And whenever you said that, like whenever the, maybe the magic item becomes a big part of the campaign itself, because it, it is such a powerful item, like using that for the adventure and against the players, like, okay, yes, they have this, this, this assortment of incredibly powerful magical items. You know who doesn't have this mo- this very powerful assortment of magical items? People who are more powerful than you and want those items. Maybe not even more powerful. Maybe just people who are fucking desperate. Like if if it gets out that you're walking around with a inestimably powerful and valuable sword, and you're just rocking it on your hip, you leave town. How is every fucking, like, (laughs) every would-be road bandit and anyone who's got some kind of desperation in their life that would cause them to rise to the occasion not going to be waiting around the bend, you know, two miles out of town? Like, you'd be mobbed, you know? Like, oh, man, that's that's an idea for an amazing game. I think about, like, all these, like, in the... These days, museums have a lot of pressure. I was reading the other day about, like, I think about Rome, right? And this is a weird segue, but um, this I didn't. This is a weird fact about the city of Rome. There are more standing e- ancient Egyptian obelisks in Rome, just the city of Rome, than there are in Egypt. Whoa! Uh, because they got looted, right? And so imagine a game in the future where, like, the party stumbles upon this really, like, nice magic item, but there's, it's like a cultural item, right? And the next, and so they're, like, getting hunted down by, the like, a, a wizard who, like, creates magic items or a culture that, you know, is trying to seek their lost heritage or whatever. And, like, the whole, like, for the entirety of the game, there's this subplot and it might even be the overt plot that, like, they're just, like, they're trying to protect their horde of magic items from the people they stole them from or claim to be their original owners. That'd be a good game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of the key of making it work is keeping it from being just ma- a magic item that the player characters are have in their possession. Make sure that there is some sort of story behind it like these powerful items are going to be storied items they're going to have been a part of history and have probably shaped history so incorporating that history into the game incorporating those stories is only going to enrich the story that you have if you can get the player characters to see these these this assortment of monty hall items that they have picked up as more than just the the plus three weapons that they've got the the armor that they've got um making it more than just a stat on their sheet because once the players write a stat on their sheet like that if there's nothing special about it it's just going to be one more thing that's on the character sheet and it's not going to mean anything 
and that's just great advice in general, I think, for anybody listening who um, is, you know, is just trying to come up with a game or maybe struggling to, to create content, is that it's, it's easy to create more, like to create quantity of, and I'm, this is me from personal experience, I'm the type of person that I want to always get to the next plot point. I, I think about terms, think about it in a very narrative way. So I'm always trying to get the players to the next, you know, encounter, social encounter, I guess. And those like fights and whatever, those are ways to get over to that next point. But like, it's just as, it's, it's just as meaningful and it probably is more meaningful. And I dare, it's probably a lot easier to think more in terms of depth it's like instead of thinking about what new, unique idea I can bring into the game, it's like how can I make either, you know, how can I make the story more depth, give it more depth, like give, because so many times in games, magic items are just magic items. I mean, they're just, yeah, there's magic items in the world. You got one, congratulations, it's pretty, and you don't really go much into that. You could create sessions and sessions worth of subplots just by doing that, creating storylines connected to items that they could have even gotten in random games. It could be mundane, a mundane item, but it could be a Monty Hall item. And it should be. If you choose to give your players a Monty Hall item, you could really build almost the... You could build a huge chunk of the story around that because, by definition, it should be super rare and super, like... Like, like it's it, it shouldn't just be a small thing that someone finds an ancient sword that's even plus two for something, or if it's a flaming weapon or whatever. Those types of things should be, you know, there should be some sort of depth that you can bring into the game that way. Yeah, that's that's not a plus three longsword. That's fucking Narsil. Your uh, your ancestor used that to cut the ring off Sauron's finger. <laughs> that thing matters. Yeah, I, I agree. Another thing I want to bring up um, about loot in D&D is that I think that part of the problem with Monty Hall stuff is that they, for whatever reason, designed most of the magic items to be unqualified benefits to the character who has them. There's the cursed items as a counterpoint, but um, I, I think that it would be much more interesting and solve a lot more of those kind of problems if more magic items were some kind of trade-off if if you were you know if it was kind of hurting or costing something of the character to use it as well as the benefit and you know play around with the devil's bargain um more but yeah when everything is just another plus one to something of course you're gonna try to stack as many plus ones on top of yourself as you can yeah, can we have a talk about cursed or intelligent items for a second? Because they're very Monty Hallish. Let's do it. Well, how do you guys feel about them? Well, whenever I am the DM, I always forget that the that the sword is intelligent as and is empathic and is able to telepathically communicate with its wielder. And as I'm running everything else that is a part of the game, I forget that the that the sword absolutely hates orcs and is going to flip out every time there is an orc around and try to convince the uh, its wielder to attack the orc on sight. I forget that whenever I'm the DM. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't think that should be the dungeon master's responsibility. I think if you get a an intelligent item like that, the DM should tell you what its personality and its goals and stuff are. And 
then I think you should take it on yourself, just like if you had uh, some kind of follower or retainer or whatever that you would control um, and and do all that, or, or a pet. It's very similar kind of thing. Um, my problem with them is, that at least in the ones that I've looked at, which is, I guess, all of them, um, they're kind of samey. The intelligent ones, I mean, like there there's one there's one or two for for each kind of like major thing there's uh there's the stormbringer analog there's like the good version of that there's like sort of a balance one in between um they're kind of boring and the cursed items are a little bit more interesting but just like the um the deck of many things and some of the other wacky stuff that D&D has, I think a lot of that shit has been super nerfed in the last couple of editions. I mean, yeah, I, I had one in the last game that I gave to, I believe, can't remember, Groovin, I think had one that I had envisioned was gonna, I was gonna you make a little mischief with that, that it was an intelligent item and it was evil, and it was, and I remember it, it had a lot of, uh, like it had the urge to, to violence was how I imagined it. And, you know, for a couple sessions I really played it up but like inevitably it, it almost became this like tug of war between the player and the dm it's like cuz it, unless you straight up take it down to a a roll random roll of whether you can and i was just looking up the sanity rule sub rules to roll 20 and i think that introducing some sort of willpower mechanic is important when you do that because if you just give your you know player the choice to you know, you've got this sword really wants blood, you know, you can, it's really, you know, it really wants to fight these guys. Don't, why, don't talk to them. Just to, it wants you to attack them. You know, the player inevitably is like, you know, if the situation's not right for it, they're like, eh, but I'm not going to do that. But mm-hmm. no, no, we're just going to, I'm just going to resist it. Like, mm-hmm. Okay. And then you get into the situation where you're like, okay, do I have to make my player roll a willpower check or whatever? Every time they get into this, especially if, like like you said, with orcs, that would even be a little more manageable because you might not run into orcs or you could control the orcs. But some of them have very, like, inconvenient urges, you know. And, and I don't know, it seems like that could, that, that could bother me as a player, too. I like your idea, Jordan, of giving it to the player. But that's, once again, you're relying, you know, it's tough to rely on a player to do things that's not going to be advantageous to the party in bad situations. It takes a special role player who can pull that off socially in the game, but also do it and be honest to the, you know, to the character and the and the item, you know. Usually they're just like, eh, I'll use it when it's useful and I'll forget that I had it when I don't. One way that you could handle uh, the intelligent item or something like that would be taking a, a note from either the game... Um, Monsters and Other Childish Things, or from um, um, Geist, the Sin Eaters from World of Darkness, where another player is the one who is in control over what that thing does and says to the to the player who wields it. Um, I could see that being a very good tool, and you, you can then reward the player who is um, controlling who has control over the item, who is saying all of the things into the, um, the ear of the character who has the, the magic item, you can find a way of, um, of giving some sort of in-game benefit 
um, like if you're playing Savage Worlds, a Benny or a Fate Point or Inspiration in D&D, something like that to to reward the player for doing a good job of portraying this item that another player is wielding. Ooh, I don't know about that. Why not? Have you played in a game like that or just read about it? You mean with a with a player playing and basically an NPC item? Yeah, I've I've been a player in in that game or I'm yeah, I was a player in a game that did that. Um I think it worked really well because me and the player who was um controlling my um uh, my sword was just constantly like just kind of tapping me on the arm and just whispering things at me that my sword was saying to me. My first my first thought would be almost kind of like still the same problem that you know, say there was uh, an item that would influence you to go in a way that would disadvantage the party, even if it was controlled by a third party other player. Uh, I don't. It would. You'd have to delegate it to a. a I don't know. Like, it just seems weird. It's maybe that's the DM control freak in me. It makes me feel like even that player like would only use that. Would only remember that responsibility when it would benefit the party. You know what I mean? But maybe not. Ellie, sometimes, man, you sound like you've been traumatized from some groups that you have run games for. Like, <laughs> you have got a a marked, uh, what's the word I want to use? Suspicion, I guess? Uh, like, you, you, you don't seem to want to trust the group at all. It's the school teacher in you? I think it's probably the school teacher in me. And yes, I have had a couple of those situations. Where like, not to go into any, not to go into any details, uh, because it, somebody in this, in on this podcast definitely was not involved in any of these types of games. But I, there was a time in my role playing career where, as a player, and the, or the, I thought that it was an adversarial role, and I know that there was a time when we all kind of thought that that the DM was versus the players, right? And I think that's common in younger players or just it maybe a certain, there are certain cultures of gamers too. You know, I mean, we all know those guys. There are people who play D and D who have completely different ways of looking at things and they want to get over on the DM and the DM wants to get over on them. And uh, I've had a couple of games where, uh, things have not gone my way as the DM, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, that's more of a lack on my side, I think is of the DM, because once again, you know, it's the the DM's job is to give a story and to arbitrate what goes on in the party. But at the end of the day, it's not every DM realizes that the player's fun is the ultimate goal. And, you know, I guess I'm leaning more on that side. And I've made that comment a couple of times on the podcast. It's like, I do feel like the DM is the most important player because they put more work in. And so, like, if the DM has something to say or something they want to do, to a certain point, you know... It's on it's on the players to want to follow that rabbit hole. I mean, but only if it's fun, right? Yeah, I, I think the important thing. That's what I, I don't want to. I don't want to derail all this, but I just want to say in response to what you just said, um, the way I think about it is that it is a antagonistic role, but it's a pretend antagonistic role. Like I, I think about when I am when I'm running a game. I feel like I'm wrestling with my little cousins, you know, like obviously the DM could just wipe the party anytime he wanted to because he controls the whole context where everything happens. But the fun of it 
is simulating enough resistance for the other combatants who are just dramatically weaker to feel like there's some drama, some back and forth, some ups and downs, and that, you know, in the end, they, they actually accomplish something. Like, I don't know. That's, that's all I had to say about that. There are some players, though, who don't recognize that. They don't recognize that the DM is trying to do those things. They only see the game as, or they only see the game master as this person who is here to try to try to mess me up and try to um, mess up what my what I am here to do and what my character wants. The DM is only here to mess that up. Mm-hmm. And I want to contrast that with the a trend that I've been seeing most markedly in the last 10 years is just the number of players who play the game and recognize that the day that the DM is there to, um, to facilitate the fun by throwing challenges and the player contributes to the challenges that they experience and that the other players experience. I see that as being a, a trend over basically the past 10 years of there being more players who recognize that it's this game is not an adversarial game. I mean, what's the old adage, right? When you get when you give a guy a vorpal sword, every problem looks like a neck that needs to be decapitated. <laughs> is that how it goes? Something like that. We didn't talk much about the mini hall thing. Can we can we talk about that a little bit before before we wrap up? I know we're starting to get kind of long, but I'd like to to touch on what it's like to to be in a game completely deprived of magic items if we can is that all right clayton yeah um i was just gonna say that um the mini hall campaign that is what i ran the first few years when i was dm i was i had read too much online about the monty hall problem and i was incredibly reticent to give out loot i was i was reticent to give out coinage magic items um and it got to the point where it was unbalancing for the players where they were going into combats um, at in, in third edition D and D they were going into combats at seventh or eighth level and they didn't have enough magic items in order to beat the resistances of the um, of the mon- all of the monsters that they were fighting or they didn't have um, they didn't have the proper things that they needed in order to get through an encounter. I, that was a problem that I had probably my first three or four years when I was a DM. And it took a lot of effort on my part in order to break myself of that habit. Um, to break myself, I'm, I'm still too stingy with coinage. Um, I still don't give out nearly as many coins as as I probably should because I've, I've heard complaints from my players and I see it whenever they go to buy stuff of well i would like to get this thing but i just don't have enough coin for it and it's and sometimes it's even for mundane um mundane gear they'll get to a point and they're like well we don't have um well this would have been in third edition we don't have 50 feet of rope because i didn't have enough to buy it at character creation and now we're level four and i've never i i haven't been to a shop when i had enough money to buy rope i mean they're the worst what? I mean, that that's, I, I don't have a lot to say. I would much rather err on the side of giving too much than giving too little, but uh, a DM that's actively, uh, I don't know. I mean, it depend, It also depends on the campaign. I mean, there, 
that can be fun whenever everybody knows that going into it uh, from the beginning. If you say I wanted to create like a real grindy, low-tech, low-resource-driven uh, game, then as long as, I guess, poverty is a part of the gameplay, you know, having to survive, I guess, I could see that being fun. But, I mean, to just go into dungeons and, you know, and all you're getting is... I don't know, like sunstones or like simple potions of magic and like some copper in every single one of your kit, every single loot that you find. That's like at that point, you're just like yawn. Yeah, it's like, why isn't my character just like running a shop somewhere or like farming something? Like, why am I risking my life? <laughs> right. Yeah, there there is a setting where that is where there is a place for that. And that setting is called dark sun. Um, if you're not playing in dark sun and you realize that you are running a mini hall campaign, the solution is very easy. You drop a treasure hoard on the player characters. <laughs> Clean. You are very stingy with, uh, with treasure. I can say like to, to this day, that's a, that's a thing that I expect anytime I sit down for a Clayton games. Like, Oh man, better pinch pennies unless he's, got a wild hair and we're doing something experimental with robes of many things <laughs> if this is a yeah you did regular campaign from that experience and i don't <laughs> think that you did much to uh to sway him in that instance clayton you want to revisit that that personal nightmares for context <laughs> i'm pretty sure we've talked about it on the podcast but um for the, our listeners to uh hear it again um I had customized the uh, item creation rules a little bit for an Eberron game we were playing, and Jordan realized that through the um, through the uh, through the rules that I had presented and the abundance of magical crafters that were available in the city of Sharn in Eberron, um, Jordan realized he had the capacity to um, make robes of useful items um, for cheaper than what the resulting items were going to be worth and he just decided to hire out literally every craftsman in the city who was capable of making them in order to uh create a an income for himself he's an industrialist man he's flipping robes i mean that and but that is something that you need that is a good example of what could be a monty hall moment in a game that could be completely you know that can be destabilizing in a game that people need to watch out for that, you know, anything you have to also think about, like if, especially magic items that aren't necessarily weapons, like can these be exploited uh, monetarily to gain, just like in a video game, there's always that hack that you can, you know, go find that one trader that makes you the endless good deal. Uh, you know what I mean? That's definitely a possible outcome. It's like, yeah, you could give it's one thing to have a player that has like a vorpal sword, say, or some crazy weapon, and that's bad enough as a DM. But I think use the combat implications are one thing. But like some of these items are so wealthy or so valuable, why would your character your character could like trade trade it for like a, just a treasure trove? Could trade it for ownership of a town? You know what I mean? Like some of these items are so valuable, they could even turn those items into something uh, that you could completely change the nature of your game. So that's that's another thing that Jordan figured out with that. But, I mean, I think that you could run to that problem with a lot of high-level magical items. I mean, why not trade a wish 
ring, I could trade a ring of wish. I could make a wish, or I could just take it to like a, a king of a kingdom. He could make me like a really wealthy lord, you know? Because why wouldn't he want a ring of wishes, right? Look at what Jafar did. Yeah, I, I I think it's a mistake to let magic be something that can be purchased. I think that that's just like asking for trouble. Full stop. I agree, one hundred percent. Yeah, for and sure. I agreed before you abused the system to show me the error of my ways. <laughs> Man, it's just bad 5e design. Like Anybody could have done it. On average, the robe is worth more than what you paid for it. It's just fucking stupid. Um, but I, I just want to circle back real quick to the Monty Hall thing, or the mini hall thing. Um, depending on what level you are, like especially at low level, this is a, a really big deal. Um, if your party is unable to produce magical damage of a sufficient quantity to kill certain things that you might encounter at that level, um, you might get a, a complete total party kill from something as simple as like a specter. Like there's, there's a couple different undead that unless you've got some way to do a bunch of magic damage, they're just going to be completely immune to everything and just kill your whole fucking group. Um, that's not as big of a problem since you've got things like firebolt and like, you know, some of the magic dealing cantrips, but that's dependent on your party just happening to be specked out that way. Um, I, I think that that's like, just to go off the, the thing you were talking about prior Clayton, like it, it kind of scales all the way up. You know, I mean, if you've got a troll and you don't have, some kind of uh, fire spell or fire sword or something like that, you, you might get wiped. Um, I don't know. It, the game assumes that your characters are specked out to some degree. I think running like you, I think there's there is a there is a little magic in in good DM design. If you kind of I think in terms of like if we're say we're D and Ding because we always talk about D and D, but in any game like the first four or five sessions we'll call it maybe the first four or five levels you know you it should be i think it should be a little sparse if only to make those initial magic items that you do give them feel so special right magic items are definitely important in a game and you want to give them out you need to be thoughtful about which ones you give and they need to be appropriate level but you have i mean at a certain point like jordan was saying it's like why the hell am i adventuring if not to get rich or die trying right and at a certain point if they don't die trying but they're still not getting rich uh that's not going to be fun unless you have some i mean some other super engaging part of your game but still you know players deserve those payoffs but giving it too early it can be it it lowers like you were saying clayton it lowers the value of them you know it makes them like ho-hum it's like oh shit i got something like that in the second in the second session big deal you know I know exactly why I edged toward doing a mini hall campaign is because of those low levels. They go by so quickly. And as the DM, I'm thinking, well, hell, I just gave a magic item out to them uh, two sessions ago. That's my mindset. And then if one of my players told me, oh, hey, that was last level that you gave us a new magic item and we're gaining a new level at the end of this session and we haven't been... Uh, compensated enough for the amount of experience that we have gotten to uh to have as much loot as we should that's where i run into my problem is just where the low levels seem like they go by so much quicker and i have this 
this this block in my mind that magic items need to be rare. They need to be special. And I, and I, and I equate them being special with being given out less often. And I know it's a fallacy of mine and I'm struggling to beat it. And I'm very sorry that I haven't beaten it yet. If I could, I'd like to propose a, uh, a system that I think would be a pretty balanced way of, of approaching magic item distribution and you guys uh tell me what you think and it's based off of what elliot did um with his uh last campaign um in ravenloft um and i've seen this the versions of this done before but i i really like the idea of a wish list um the players create you know probably early on um, the magic items that, uh, you know, will complement their character because it's, if you just go by random rolls, you know, inevitably you're going to get some stupid shit. Like the, the rogue randomly rolls a helm of brilliance. It's like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? This is just for a completely different kind of person than who I am. Um, and then you get into like the magic trading and, you know, bartering economy and you're back to the same problem. But if you've got intentional magic items that maybe the maybe the player doesn't know when they're coming or in what order that they're coming, but you know they're already at power tiers of common, uncommon, uh, so on. Um, you create like a customized random list for each player, and you give them out uh, in that milestone kind of way that we as a group at least seem to have gotten pretty accustomed to uh, for character leveling as well. So like everybody's kind of got their own personalized magic item list that still got a random element to it uh, that grows with them over time. Does that seem like the best way to go? Do you guys have thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I can give you the other side of that experience because I'm glad I'm glad I did that and I'm I'm glad you appreciated it. Um the one thing that I would do differently or I would do it a little differently this time though. Um I, it was pretty low level, say 5th, 6th-ish, I think when I asked for the list. Um and I had two experiences. Certain players gave an itemized list that they clearly took an evening to do and put a lot of thought into it and it was great. And then you had other players who struggled to give me anything. And so um, I think, so the, inevitably I felt like I was letting down the players who made really good concise lists and put in that work. I felt an obligation to give them those things. And But there were so many, it was like, anyway. Uh, but then I had to basically create that list for others, which is fine. That's easy. You just do random rolls or whatever. But uh, I think what I would do next time is I would do that in segments i would like almost ask my ask your players or i would ask my players like what is like the one ultimate magic item for your character maybe right off the bat you know what would what could you what weapons could you see or items would you see your character working their whole career to get would be there the big ticket item and just ask for one of those and then every couple of levels say now give me like two items that you think your character would really like to have over the next three levels or yeah, kind of like almost make it a smaller bit. I would, I would add a lot. I would just, I would do it more granular. That way I as the DM wouldn't be overloaded. And plus, you know, if you ask for something 
you know, in May and you're still running the game in August, you may not even remember what was on that list or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so doing, asking for more concise, smaller chunks, I think is good just to add to make sure that the players, you know, aren't building up these huge lists and then not getting most of it, but also to keep it in the front of your mind, you know, but. I would, I would add to what Elliot said. My, my criticism follows very similar to what Elliot said, but I'm going to phrase it a slightly different way. And I'm going to be a little bit sarcastic when I say it. It's the, the system falls apart when it comes to the filthy casuals who play the D and D, the people who only care about the game whenever they are, the game starts and they stop thinking about it when the game ends and they don't give it any more thought throughout the week. Those people will not come up with a list of magic items that they want. So there's always going to be somebody in the group who is like that. There's usually going to be more than one in the group who is like that. And having the players come up with lists, yeah, that's that's a great idea. And if you've got players who are invested in it, that that does solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem when not everyone is invested enough in order to find an item that they are going to want for their character. Yeah. I was just thinking about requiring it as like one of those steps of character creation. Um, and you know, maybe your character doesn't even know like that those things exist. Maybe that's like a, you know, meta game kind of activity or whatever, but yeah, I mean, noobs don't have the no noobs may not know what they can get. Right. And I also wanted to say something about consumable magic items here. Um, I think it's really cool to be pretty liberal with like potions and scrolls and shit that has a finite number of charges, stuff like that. I think those things are super fun and are exactly the types of things that belong on like random loot lists and stuff. It's the, the things that are like clearly permanent, like almost relic level items that you probably don't want to just hand out and just happen to have come across in a, a random chest in a dungeon someplace unless it was like intended to be there. Yeah, I 100% would agree with you, Jordan. However, I am also the player who whenever I get to an end, the end of a Final Fantasy game, I have 99 or 999, whatever the max is, number of mega elixirs yeah. because I'm holding on to them for until the point where I really need yeah. them. <laughs> well, how, well, this is definitely getting a bit far afield, but how does this how how does how, how does the game like, what do you think about create, giving your players, instead of giving your players an avenue to request from you, the DM, certain things, is there any system that pulls off well giving the players the ability to create those things themselves and letting it be a mini game? It's like, now it's like, uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, you guys understand. The D&D, D&D doesn't do it well. It's been garbage in every version of D&D I've seen. Um I don't know if there's a system that does it well. Clayton, do you know one? Nothing comes to mind. As as far as something that has a lot of rules in it, I know that I really liked the um, World of Darkness uh, werewolf stuff for making like totems and stuff as they involved like actually going out and binding spirits to um, an item in order to make it a magic item. And I'm pretty sure that the mage system had something similar for, for magic items in there. You just jarred my memory. I, I take that back completely. Fucking Stormbringer had an awesome magic item creation system 
um, where you would do just that. You would find demons or like summon demons or um, elementals and you would bind them into weapons and armor and whatever. And, um, you know, demons would give you a lot of like really random kinds of powers that uh, like you wouldn't know exactly what you were getting. You would just get like a X number of power kind of demon that could do all kinds of different things in your sword or whatever it is. Um, the other stuff was a little more predictable. Like, you know, maybe a air elemental would uh, deflect arrows or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, the Stormbringer games have had a really fucking kick-ass magic creation system, uh, magic item creation system, almost like Pokemon. You go, like, hunting for these things and then turn them into magic items. <laughs> and if they escaped, that was a really fucking cool thing that D&D never does. Um, if your demon sword, like, breaks or something, or if you fuck up the ritual to bind the demon to the the weapon or armor or whatever, that thing's still there and it's just going to fucking tear your head off. Um, or if you've got like a fire sword and a ice sword that cross each other, they're going to negate each other and explode. <laughs> There's all kinds of like cool shit like that. Yeah, I'm going with Stormbringer for that pick. Because that seems like, to go back to the video game thing, I've been playing a lot of... Uh, I won't reveal my geek things. When I, I've been playing survival games lately, and I've been playing Fallout Four again. And like, like there's always the this given this back and forth. I really enjoy that. I think lends itself to being adopted to D and D, but I've never seen it done. That like the way that I play those games is that I'll go quest for a while and pursue whatever story thing I'm wanting to do. But then I kind of get tired of the grind, like you do in in. I think in D&D or role-playing games, it simulates kind of like that downtime people always want to take. You Once you've gone on a long quest, you kind of want a little downtime to recenter and spend your loot or whatever. And, like, it would be – in, the in like, Fallout, I always take breaks by building up my you – know, I like that part of the game, the mini game where you can build your camps. And you can – I'll spend days and days and hours and hours and hours in the game just building my camp. And, you know, go else that leads to more quests to go get certain junk just to come back and finish like a turret or something like that. That could be a real driver in a game if uh, and would man, that's it, like it's one thing to find a rad, random magic item or to quest for it. Even if you're like, oh, the sword's over in that tomb, let's go get it. But like to like make a part of the story just you collecting the items to create it yourself to me that's that would be an easy game to make and the, i think the players really dig it agreed i would dig that i tried to do something similar to that in a campaign not too awfully long ago i let the players know that um that basically they could harvest parts off of monsters and use those parts to make magic items that were in somehow related to it like for instance um harvest the um the eyes off of a creature with dark vision in order to make goggles of night or or something like that i was hoping that there was going to be a point in the campaign where the players realized you know what we could hunt certain monsters in order to get certain magic items that we want unfortunately the campaign never got to that point it was it was always just well let's see what we can make from the monsters that we killed in the in the course of this one quest that we've already completed yeah uh 
I, I mean, it seems like it would have, I mean, there's other problems for the DM too. You're, then you just kind of create a, you have to, you're on the spot to make recipes for these items, which are not given usually in games. I could see there being a lot of uh, work for the DM to still do to support a game like that, but I don't know. seems fun. I think it'd be really fun, especially if you, if you had that list. I'm, I've seen like things like that uh, on random people's websites, nothing like official or anything, but um, going back years and years, like cool recipes for potions and whatever. Um, the potions are the ones that make me want to do stuff like that too. Cause as a DM, one of the, my, not a, I guess a little pet peeve, but it's nothing against any players. It's just pet peeve for the systems themselves is that there's no really great mechanism for um uh for making them and you know to me i don't know i'm kind of like you jordan or or maybe it was clayton that said this i just don't think magic items should just be purchased like a commodity i think that there's something that is too that cheapens it a little bit but then you just are in the position of like just you don't know like you're having to constantly your roll. Oh, well, you find a magic potion in this random box. It's like, oh, you, you killed a goblin that has three magic potions. You're just constantly having to feed your players these. And if you don't, they get pissed. So it ended up always just devolves into, ah, fuck it. You can just go buy one. I would love to be able to just be like, no, you got to fucking make your own. And now you manage it in this mini game. And there you go. I also think that there should probably be more ways that magic items can be destroyed. Like that's the whole reason that they came up with the the rust monster is to like counterbalance the the Monty Hall tendencies of things, but like it's pretty hard to do with a dispel magic spell, um, and I don't know. I, I just think that uh, there should be some risk involved if you're gonna if you're gonna pull out <clears throat> some really powerful magic item to deal with a with a threat like it. You know what I'm saying? Like you're putting a big asset out there uh, into play. It'd be like like going to war with the fucking Mona Lisa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's there's something unique here that you're using, and um, you know it it's a big target. Like if if I'm a fucking wizard, some evil wizard fighting a group of pretty well stocked player characters depending on what the item is it might make more sense for me to try to destroy a magic item than to destroy the person wielding the magic item so i don't know i will say that one of the few things that i really liked about fourth edition D was it had you had the um the capacity to break down a magic item that you no longer needed in order to basically gain the magical essence of it and then use that in order to craft a new magic item Personally, I hated that system. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play fourth enough to to really develop a taste or distaste for it. Well, we're starting to run a little bit long. Are you comfortable with going on to geek things? For sure. Yep. All right. Um, I've got just one. Well, yeah, I've just got one geek thing I'm going to do. Um, I've been watching a YouTube series called Cinema Therapy. It is a licensed uh, therapist and a filmmaker um, examining movies. Um, they either look at the movies or they look at particular characters and do basically a psychological workup of of the characters that are in it. They've got a series where they um, they uh, the therapist advises what type of therapy would would 
would work best for like certain villains and um i i've been getting a big kick kick out of watching that series so um cinema therapy is uh my geek thing for this week I, I i've got a couple i'll make it i'll try to make it as short as possible um first of all i'm playing this game called the forest it's on all platforms it's really fun crash on a desert island next thing you know you're trying to you know build up a base and survive on an island full of cannibals it's a lot of fun but i really want to talk about something i read about recently um an album uh, by the wu-tang clan called once upon a time in shaolin have you guys heard of this album yes this is an unreleased like super rare album yeah, so they, they worked on it for over 10 years. The idea behind it was that they wanted to simulate uh, how, like, instead of being it just overly commercialized and, like, see how many albums you can sell, they wanted to make a, a singular piece of art. And so they recorded over this long period of time. They only pressed one copy of the album, and then they encased it in this ornate, golden box with this it's just this cool looking object and then it's a part of the ownership and buying and copying gaining ownership comes along with a contractual obligation to not reproduce it under the like huge penalty or whatever you get your ass suit off to make sure that it only stays by one copy so they released it i can't remember i think 2016 17 or whatever they they released it for sale they auctioned it and it was purchased for over a million dollars but weirdly enough the story goes even stranger it was the guy who bought it was the now disgraced pharmaceutical ceo martin shakrelli if you're not familiar with this guy he's the guy who got infamous by becoming the CEO of this pharmaceutical company that makes insulin and just jacked the price way up and it just, and he ended up losing, he went to jail for all kinds of shit. The dude's a total piece of shit. Yeah. And well, when they seized his assets, that album was one of the things they seized and they had to resell it. And so there's this, I'm not going to go into all the details. There's, there was an article written about it. I, I wish I had thought about that first, but it's on Wikipedia. And so like it put, it even put like the Wu-Tang Clan in this weird position where they had to like distance themselves from him and the selling of the object. They like donated the money they got from it once he was disgraced and all this stuff. So now it's in this weird limbo where nobody really knows what to do with this thing. And it's, okay, MC paid $2 million for it. But it's just a really interesting story, and uh, I just like the idea of music being done in a completely different way and released in a different way. It was kind of neat. Um, I got one. It is uh, it is called wormhole.app. Um, it's this website, and there's also an Android app for it. And it's super simple. Uh, what it does is it lets you send a file um, or files up to 10 gigabytes at a time and it's end-to-end encrypted and it, you just go to the thing in your browser like select your files it gives you a link that you can then send to whoever and they can download whatever your thing is for up to 24 hours and then it disappears completely and nobody except you and the recipient that you send it to ever gets to see what those files are and it's completely free. Uh, you can use it, you know, an unlimited amount of times. It's just kind of amazing. Um, I'm going to be sending my 
one third of the recording of this to Clayton over wormhole as soon as we conclude. So yeah, check it out. It's pretty sweet. All right, guys. Well, why do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? Let's do it. Okay. This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.